The Guardian. Hello, this is Guardian Daily and I'm Michael White on the first day of the new parliament. We had an election 12 days ago. Hundreds of MPs were either kicked out or retired. Somewhat in disgrace, the expenses scandal hovering over the last year of the parliament. Now we've got a new one. Time for a new beginning, new government, and the House began its first act. What was it to elect a new speaker in John Burko? It was a privilege to serve as speaker for the past 10 months and it would be an honour to serve again in this parliament. And the other big topic of the day was another election, that of a new Labour leader to succeed Gordon Brown. The Labour National Executive today decided to make it a long contest, taking uh, the party right up to the uh, uh, Labour annual conference in uh, the autumn. Not a short one, we've got two candidates in contention and we're going to find out from Labour MPs who and what qualities they think are needed in the top job. I think I'm going to be backing David Miliband. I've spoken to David, I've also spoken to, to Ed Miliband and, and I've, said, I've, I've said to both what I I think I'm going to be doing at this stage, but I do think it's really important that all of the candidates get the chance to set out their stalls before people make a final decision. And I'm John Dennis at The Guardian's HQ. Also in today's show, we'll hear from our correspondent in Berlin about the young German girls freed from their abductors in Yemen. And Lord Coe tells us why the London 2012 Olympics will be gastronomic gold. We'll be serving 14 million meals across 40 different venues. That in itself is quite a challenge. Quality food is often the difference between a good and a winning performance. Guardian Daily. I'm here in the House of Commons where MPs have just voted to retain the services of John Burko as Speaker. Now, you may remember uh, Mr Burko was elected in controversial circumstances ten months ago. Michael Martin had just been scapegoated, forced to resign, first time in three, four hundred years as Speaker, defending the MPs and some of their indefensible practices uh, 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 on expenses. I'm afraid they threw him to the wolves. Tory idea and the Labour MPs retaliated by electing Mr Burko, who was not popular on his own side at the time. Let's hear what he had to say to justify his continuation in office. It was a privilege to serve as Speaker for the past 10 months, and it would be an honour to serve again in this Parliament. I would discharge my duties impartially, not just between parties but between individual members. Above all, I would defend the rights of backbenchers to hold the government to account and to champion... (laughs) and to champion the causes dear to their hearts. For better or for worse, I have become known for insisting on short questions and short answers. Sometimes a short speech is also appropriate. John Burke was proposed by former Foreign Secretary Sir Malcolm Rifkin, fellow Tory, who said, look, I didn't vote for you ten months ago, but I've been impressed by what I've seen. Uh, You've been fair to all sides. You've been strong in difficult situations. You've stood up for backbenchers like me. I'm in favour of that. Now I'm a backbencher. And he said, 
A year ago, you were thought to be too young at 47, but today we have a House of Commons in which you're four years older than the Prime Minister and his deputy and eight years older than the Chancellor of the Exchequer, so I think you're old enough. Uh, Good-humoured speech. Then MPs were asked to say, aye or no, yes or no, to this proposition. As many of that opinion say, aye. Aye. Of the contrary, no. No. I think the aye... I think the eyes have it. The eyes have it. Now, did you catch a few no's there? Uh, Yes, you did. Probably no more than a dozen MPs. I think I heard the voice of Nadine Dorries, backbencher who's had trouble both with Mr. Burko and with uh, her expenses, Conservative. Uh, I think her colleague, somebody said, Anne Main sitting next to her, said no as well. There were certainly male voices. I'm not going to speculate now as to who they are. You can get into trouble at that uh, quite easily that way. And then we heard from David Cameron. Speaker Burko actually said, Prime Minister... And people shouted, oi, that's you. This is a new era for our politics and something of a new start. A chance for a new generation to show just how good this place can be. And everyone knows, Mr Speaker-elect, that you have a deep respect and affection for this place. You believe in changing the role of backbenchers and you know how much we need to do to improve the reputation of our Parliament. There will be new challenges, not least with the first coalition government in 65 years. And with 232 new members of Parliament, this will very much be a new Parliament. We have 72 new women MPs and 16 new members of Parliament from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, and I'm proud that my party played its part in delivering this result. It really does look and feel different. Indeed, many of us are sitting next to people that we've never sat next to before. Well, Burko has been a controversial figure. As I said, some Tory MPs were determined to get him out. I thought they wouldn't, and they haven't. I think what clinched him for it among MPs who saw him in the last Parliament, MPs who'd been re-elected, not the 200 newcomers, is that they felt he was on the side of the backbenchers. Remember, this new Parliament is meant to be asserting uh, the power of Parliament against an over-mighty government. It's a Tory one now. It was Labour same problems, and there are even a couple of complaints this afternoon, David Blunkett was one of them, that uh, the government had already begun announcing things it should tell to Parliament first, to uh, uh, the radio or the television or to the press. So an ongoing battle, and earlier I heard from several MPs what exactly they want from the Speaker. Well, I'm here in Portcullis House. I'm talking to Julian Brazier, newly uh, re-elected Conservative MP for Canterbury. Uh, He had to fight off the Lib Dems who were being supported by the, the Guardian, Guardian, he helpfully yeah. adds, yes, well, I hope you'll forgive us. Of course, of course, Michael. Yeah, you asked some my views on the speakership. I, one or two of the things he's done has been, uh, have been controversial, in particular his treatment of one or two members of Parliament was thought to be a bit harsh. But the uh, fact sorry, the explain pra- that to me. I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, well, he, he had a, a, a couple of early slanging matches with um, individual MPs, which left a number of people angry. Uh, but the reality is that he has achieved one thing as Speaker, which is genuinely new. He has, while other speakers have talked about it, he has banged on down the order paper. He tells uh, boring members of Parliament, and we've all been there at one time or another, when they're being boring, to belt up, and cracks on to the next question. And actually, from the point of view of a government backbencher, somewhere I've been before, the most 
important thing in the house if you want to have a chance as the lowest uh, form of life to get in and, and make your point is to have a speaker who stops people from filling it all up and, and that's exactly what he does he gets the order paper again and again so everybody gets their chance I've just seen something I never expected to see a minister by the name of Norman Baker troublemaking <laughs> MP for Lewis in Sussex Lib Dem how does it feel to be in the government Norman Baker? It feels slightly odd I hope to be troublemaking in a most positive sense of course um, within, within government as well so you're junior transport minister uh, you were the party spokesman on transport Teresa Villiers was the party spokesman on transport too she's a colleague in the department yet your boss uh, is uh, the man who thought he was going to be at the treasury Philip Hammond he had to make way for your colleague David Laws so you and Teresa are the experts is that right? Well, we start off, uh, I think, ahead of the game, uh, to be fair to Philip. He's not done transport reform. We, we have, so we start ahead of him in that sense. But, I mean, I don't think any of the uh, conjunctions of individuals or parties uh, or departments is, is ones that anyone would have predicted before the general election. So we're all in uncharted waters, um, which I put a good metaphor for the shipping part of the transport department anyway. Have you got ships? I haven't got ships. No, I've got, I've got local transport, which are local roads, um, buses, taxis, uh, all the green agenda, making sure we're... You. It will. Alternative to travel, um, uh, walking, cycling, all those sorts of bits and pieces. So it's an interesting agenda. Yeah. Completely different subject, uh, the speakership. What's your take on uh, Speaker Burko, how he's done so far, and uh, you know, what's the right thing to do this week, today? Well, I, I didn't vote for him first time, but I, I will support him today because I think that he has been effective in the chair. That's the most important thing for a speaker to be. Uh, he's more effective, frankly, than his predecessor was. Uh, and also, I think, as far as Lib Dems are concerned, he's been fair to us. Not over-fair, but fair. Uh, and he's recognised the proportions of the House the way the previous speaker didn't. He's not tied into a kind of two-party mindset. He recognises the House of Commons is changing. Now, obviously, um, that's my, my take on it. There are a number of Tory MPs in particular I know who are spitting blood about him. So Hello, troublemakers, like in the, in the all-party <laughs> awkward squad is a very important concept in Parliament. Norman was a prominent member of it. Obviously, he's reformed now that he's a minister. <laughs> I, I've not reformed. I'm just awkward in a different way. <laughs> all right. And you, 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 on balance, you've decided you didn't vote for the Speaker last time, but he's been better than you hoped, and you're back in. That, that, that's right. Yeah. Thank you. OK, thanks, Mike. Now, Jonathan uh, Isabey from Conservative Home. I know a lot of Conservatives uh, do not hold a brief for John Burko. I actually do. I think he's been a damn good speaker so far. I was delighted to see the Guardian editorial uh, praising him this morning. And I think actually at a time when there is clearly huge change in the House of Commons, uh, having him still there as speaker is a welcome bit of continuity and consistency. Some uh, Labour MPs in the last Parliament voted cynically for John Burko. One of them said it's like those wartime movies. As you retreat across Russia, you blow up the bridges and poison the wells. But others said he's the man for change. He gets it. And that, by implication, is what you're saying. Absolutely. I think that he's, he's done a fine job over the last ten months, I think. Examples of where he's well, getting it right? He, well, he, he's... He's given more opportunities for backbenchers than ever before. Often you've seen question time overrun to make sure he gets that extra couple of questions in. Business questions has generally run its course and everyone's got to ask their questions. He's hauled more ministers to the dispatch box uh, than his predecessors ever did for urgent questions and statements and things like that. That's putting him on the side of MPs and backbenchers against the overmighty government Absolutely. of whatever colour across Whitehall. Bring them in, get them to make a statement. Absolutely, and okay. I, I believe in Parliament and I, I think uh, the backbenchers are very important. And and much as I loved seeing him haul Labour ministers to the scratch box to be held to account in the last Parliament, I'm sure he will do the same for Conservative and Lib Dem ministers in this one. That was Jonathan Isabey of Conservative Home. Now back to John Dennis at Guardian HQ.
Thanks, Mike. Well, still to come with me, John Dennis, how London plans to feed the 2012 Olympic Village. You know, if you are athletes out of Africa or Asia, you are going to want to, to eat what you are comfortable with and what you are used to. But first, two German girls kidnapped last summer in Yemen with their family have been freed by Saudi intelligence forces. The fate of their parents and their younger brother isn't known. Our correspondent in Berlin is Kate Connolly. As far as we understand, um, this happened on Monday and it was Saudi Arabian special forces who were um, airlifted into uh, the area of northern Yemen where the hostages were believed to be being held, um, airlifted in, in Apache helicopters and several house searches took place and the girls were apparently found. Some shots were fired but we believe that um, there was no actual exchange of fire between the hostage takers and the special forces and we believe there was also no loss of life and uh, then the children the two girls um, as we know who were rescued were then taken under the care of um, Saudi authorities to a hospital in Saudi Arabia um, just over the border. Who were these girls family and, and why were they in the Yemen? The, the little girls were called Lydia, or our Lydia and Anna Henschel. They're three and five years old, uh, as far as we, we know. And they um, were with their family, their parents, Johannes and Sabina Henschel, um, who were a uh, medical, mechanical engineer and a nurse who sold, sold all their belongings and left their home in the village uh, of Lauska in the state of Saxony seven years ago, destined for North Yemen. Uh, they were working for a Netherlands-based Christian church charity called Worldwide Services and uh, they were there the two little girls were born there also their youngest son Simon who um, would now be two years old and they had planned to return to Germany after this seven year adventure um, this year in order that um, Anna the five year old would be able to start school. And what happened to them? Well, uh, as, as we understand, um, this story has been going on now for nearly a year. It was last June. The family went on a picnic um, in the area and um, they were accompanied by a British um, engineer and also by a couple of uh, Bible students and a Korean woman. Um, now, between the hours of four and six on June the 12th, they were kidnapped and very soon after their disappearance uh, was um, discovered, the bodies of the two Bible students and the Korean woman were found. But there's been no sign since then of the Henschels or of the British engineer until the um, news of the dramatic rescue um, escape on Monday, which came out late last night. But um, of course, what we don't know is the fate of the couple of uh, Johannes and Sabina or of their son, Simon. The German um, foreign ministry is, is refusing to confirm reports that Simon is dead. Um, but the family in Saxony are saying that they believe that he is dead and they're trying to come to terms with that right now. And do we know anything about the kidnappers? 
Well, we believe them to be a Yemeni tribe of Shiite Houthi rebels with possible links to al-Qaeda. Now, when um, the Henschels went to Yemen seven years ago, it was a relatively peaceful country, but since then, civil war-style unrest has broken out in parts of the country which has seen the army and these rebels engaged in increasingly fierce battles, particularly in the area of the north where the Henschels were stationed. Extraordinary ordeal for these two little girls. What will happen to them now? Well, the girls are going to return to Germany tomorrow on Wednesday and um, the family said they would now be received into the bosom of the family. They need peace and quiet, not flashbulbs. That's what their uncle, Reinhard Puchka, said. Um, And he was informed of the girls' rescue by the German foreign ministry on Monday. He said it will be a very difficult time for them. Of course, their um, kidnap ordeal, about which we know very little, we only know they were held in the rugged mountains of northern Yemen. Um, That is over. But, of course, um, in many respects, their nightmare may only just be beginning if it is indeed the case that their parents and their baby brother are dead. Kate Connolly in Berlin. Now, the 2012 Olympics, and never mind the transport, the weather and that terrible logo, with just 800 days to go before the London Games, one of the main challenges for the organisers will be providing the thousands of athletes in the Olympic Village with enough to eat and drink. Seb Coe chairs the London Olympics Organising Committee and he told our Consumer Affairs correspondent, Rebecca Smithers, that good food will be a legacy of the upcoming Games for the competitors and for the rest of the UK too. Quality food is often the difference between a good and a winning performance. Put this into perspective, we're, you know, we'll be serving 14 million meals across 40 different venues. So that's actually quite a, that in itself is quite a challenge. And you want quality food, and you have to have food that reflects the, you know, the seven continents competing uh, in a games. I think this gives us a chance also to use the games to change some attitudes towards the way people perceive our food production change some of the attitudes that are there that that need changing about the way town and urban community uh, rural communities interact so i see this as as being very much more than just simply about the quality of food available to athletes although of course with athletes at the center of this project that is also our that is our overwhelming consideration and Seb, you participated in, in two Olympics, didn't you? In Moscow in 1980 and then LA. Can you tell me a little bit about the kind of food that you that you had there? Was, was, it, tr- was it truly ghastly or were there some nice surprises? No, actually, both games provided very, very good quality food. I, 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 I'll be open. I mean, we went to Moscow. When I went to Moscow, uh, a lot of my colleagues in the British team actually brought, you know, like me, brought their own food supplies. You know, I bought tins of potatoes and baked beans and things like that. Not really sure what to expect actually the quality of the food in the village in moscow was of an extraordinarily high order lots of fresh vegetables fresh fruit um and and we did extremely well in fact i didn't i didn't plunder any of my own supplies at all did you suck into any of the baked no, beans I, I didn't no i didn't need to and of course in Mo- in los angeles it was a slightly it was a slightly more relaxed for obvious reasons a slightly more relaxed atmosphere i was in the the village the, the Los Angeles Games were split into two village sites, 
One was downtown, the other was in um, in Westwood, just on the edges of on the fringes of Beverly Hills. So the food in the village was very good, but you could slide out in the you know early part of the evening and go and you know have pasta in a in a local restaurant. So. On, on both occasions, actually, I was served very well. Okay, and and um, to, to what extent do you think it's important for, for the country to be serving up um, the, the, the food of that country, or to also to be catering for the, the very diverse international palettes of the, the athletes that will be coming? Oh, it's, it's absolutely essential. You know, if you are athletes out of Africa or Asia, you are going to want to, to eat what you are comfortable with and what you are used to. Um, so, so that is that is really important, and plus the fact that you know, if you look at look at the nature and diversity of London, you know, they, they, there are 300 different languages spoken, 200 different communities in London. So, you know, we're not just reflecting an overseas demand; we want to be reflecting a lot of our domestic demand as well. Seb Co talking to Rebecca Smithers. Now it's back to Michael White in Westminster. The other issue running hard uh, at Westminster today as uh, the place begins to fill up and feel uh, like normal uh, is uh, the Labour leadership. Uh, We've now had, over the weekend, both Miliband brothers declaring. We've had Guardian exclusive today, John Cruddus, the MP for Dagenham, saying uh, the leadership is not a bauble. He puts it, uh, 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 he doesn't mean that disrespectfully, which he wants. He's not suitable for it, he feels, and hopes to play a different role. So that's him ruled out. Um, we know that Yvette Cooper, Ed Bulls's wife, has ruled herself out. You go first, dear. He said to her, and she said, no, after you. He's going to declare quite soon. Um, I know that Andy Burnham, the former health secretary, is thinking very hard about it. Can he get the support to make a serious run? Uh, Northern uh, uh, Labour MP from Lancashire. Uh, And um, there may be others in the field we don't yet know, but let's find out what people are thinking. Right, uh, we've uh, bumped into Frank Field, uh, maybe getting an important job in a new commission for the new government never an orthodox Labour backbencher. Uh, what's your take on the Labour leadership? What, what does the party need now, Frankfield? The problem is that the, all the members of the Cabinet failed in a key responsibility, and that was to send us into the election with a leader who could win. So there's no one now in Parliament who was prepared publicly to try and put the Labour Party in a winning position. But they'd all backed him three years earlier for leader. Over 300 people signed his papers. I realise you probably weren't one of them. I was not one of them, no. No. Um, So, where do we go from here? What has the next leader got to do and be and say? I think that today the NEC is going to decide on a timetable. I think it would be helpful if they didn't rush into an election so that the members, first of all, can get to know themselves, because there's been a huge turnover, uh, and that we think carefully about answering that question, because almost for the first time in 31 years in the House of Commons, I can't give you an answer to a question you ask me. Funny, uh, I can't give the answer as to who it's going to be either. I normally fancy myself as doing that. So you're saying, go play it long, go to September, turn it into a positive event. Does that mean having hustings and things like that so the wider public can get to know who the candidates are? We know them slightly, but not well. I think we, the public needs to know them um, better than they do now. But the parliamentary party, given how new most of it, much of it is, needs to know them better. Uh, and... 
if we have that longer term period, people's minds will focus on the question you've actually asked. And that is, given the position we're in, what qualities do we want the new leader to have? What qualities do you think at this stage? I think two qualities, courage and vision. And having a longer... that all? (laughs) Well, it's a start. (laughs) And having a longer campaign will allow people perhaps to show those qualities. Uh, A lot of your colleagues have come back to Westminster these last few days saying, well, we didn't lose too badly, it could have been so much worse, gosh, we're more comfortable uh, uh, than we expected to be. Now, you're a bit of a Cassandra within the Labour ranks. Is that your take on the election result? No, it's not. The figures show it's our worst result since 1931. Uh, It shows that had the Cabinet acted, we probably would have won the election, given how the, the final vote was. With a new leader? With a, with a different Remind leader. Remind me again, who was your uh, choice for the new leader? Alan Johnson. But he's we just ruled himself out, hasn't he? That, that was before. No, indeed, he's shown that he doesn't want the job. But I think we would have actually won with him had we gone into the election. But as I, I just keep coming back to your question. I can't give you an answer. So that's surely a reason for us not rushing into, in the next couple of weeks, a leadership contest. Thank you. My, my, uh, if it isn't John Woodcock, MP... MP for Barrow, who used to be a special advisor to John Hutton, local MP for Barrow, and he pulled off that difficult manoeuvre for young political professionals. He persuaded the constituency party, with John Hutton's help, I know, because John Hutton told me to adopt him as the uh, local candidate. Hutton says he threw himself into the constituency with great vigour, and he has been rewarded. He's back here as a Member of Parliament. How does it feel? Uh, absolutely amazing. I've spent a lot of time down here over the years, but it is totally different coming down as an MP. And when you first get off the tube and you see the Houses of Parliament and Big Ben, you think, oh my God, this really, this really, really matters. You've been here hundreds of times. It is, but the, the difference... you years here. Well, but the difference uh, coming down as an MP with the responsibility that that, that that brings just feels completely different. And you just... We are all just itching to get into it now, but you've got to go through the process of setting up your office, finding an office down here, and David Blunkett has very kindly taken pity on me and given me a desk for the... He's for a the kind time man. He's a very kind man. Uh, but... Uh, sort of kicks off today and we just need to make sure we can get cracking. And what lessons did you learn from the campaign? What were people saying to you? They, uh, locally, they they wanted a Labour MP to stand up for them on jobs and, and jobs in, in Bower's shipyard, which, uh, which means, came that across... That means nuclear uh, uh, submarines the, the and the building submarine. thereof, uh, ab- Absolutely, yeah. and they trusted me and they trusted Labour with it more than they trusted the Tories, and that's why we came back with an increased majority. Swing uh, to you? Uh, a 0.3% swing to the Conservatives with, with an incre- pretty, increased majority, pretty, pretty which I'm very, very yeah. pleased with. Uh, but, what, but what they were saying was they were not happy with Labour. I mean, they, they, they remembered the toys and they didn't want the toys back, but they wanted us to do much better. And time after time, I got uh, a lot of my constituents saying, but what have Labour done for us? Now, how does that read across to the imminent Labour leadership contest? How do you translate that into the kind of candidate you want to see stand and win? Well, I think it's been really encouraging, and I said this uh, in an article at the weekend, that, that all of the candidates who, who have... Uh, 
and potential candidates that are talking so far have recognised that there are real fundamental problems and that we have to address things like like welfare, which I think is so important going forward and, and, is, uh, and is one thing that the people on middle and moderate incomes who are just above that welfare line are very, very fundamentally unhappy with. So uh, yeah, I, I want to see more of that and I think it's, it's really good that we're going to get a chance to, to properly debate this and, and, uh, and come out, uh, hopefully, from the leadership with a with a, a refreshed sense of direction and a, and a new vigour. Have you uh, picked a candidate yet? Uh, think carefully before you answer this dangerous question, <laughs> new MP. <laughs> no, absolutely. I've, uh, I, I think I'm going to be backing David Miliband. I've spoken to David. I've also spoken to, to Ed Miliband. And, and I've, I've, I've said to both what I, I think I'm going to be doing at this stage. But I do think it's really important that all of the candidates get the chance to set out their stalls before people make a final decision. A very enthusiastic John Woodcock there on his first day as new Labour MP for Barrow in Furness. Well, that's all for today. The new Parliament has arrived. Our producers were Phil Maynard and Ben Green. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back tomorrow. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.